Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the groundbreaking art of Chris Ware, learned about a tragedy unfolding in South Africa, and walked around Chicago's emerald necklace. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and brand new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for August 20th, 2021. Bad at Sports spoke to cartoonist Chris Ware about the origins of the Chicago comic scene. Ware, who is famous for his intricate, clean-line-style drawings, is a major part of the Chicago Cultural Center's new exhibit, Chicago, Where Comics Came to Life, 1880-1960. Ware discussed his career in comics, his experimentation with form and format, and how the Midwest fueled his art. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. There are only a handful of people we credit with raising the genre of comics into the kind of literary space. And, uh, and you are one, and it feels uh, feels like cartoonist is a great way to say it, but it's an incredibly humble way to say it. Well, that's very generous of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So you gentlemen have put together Chicago, where comics came to life, 1800, or 1880 to 1960, uh, an exhibition at the Cultural Center that, that tracks the history of Chicago comics and developments. What? Why does Chicago get to claim this place in comic history? Well, I mean, certainly people don't think about Chicago and comics or put those together. But uh, the comics were out there way before Chicago was involved. But Chicago took it in whole different directions. And one of the many things that it did was generate unusual ways of making the comics not just be little gag joke features, but actually tell a continuing story, developing characters that you would follow from day to day, and uh, you know setting up a kind of storylines of suspense, but also in terms of really kind of creative artwork, the distribution and syndication of comics. So. Uh, comics could then be distributed all around the country. Uh, just lots of innovations that people don't even think about. But that, uh, you know, the whole development of comics in general has a lot of Chicago DNA in it. Yeah, Chicago is really the, the city where, I mean, as the title of the show suggests, where real life and uh, human storytelling really came into comics, as Tim said where it kind of broke free of its of what we might think of as sort of like vaudevillian gag a day type stuff and became something that people turned to every day to find out what the little people on paper were doing, which is, is a maybe in the late twenties or so, which is a form that then led uh, directly into radio serialized storytelling, then television and uh, way up now until the Netflix days of today that got us through the past 15 months or so. Uh, so it can all really kind of be traced back to Chicago and especially editors at the Chicago Tribune, especially um, Joseph Medill Patterson, who Tim wrote about for the the exhibit. Um, it was an editor who encouraged all of his uh, his artists to, as a lot of the cartoonists quipped at the time, introduce a baby into their strips uh, because that was kind of what, as human beings, if, come to learn is what kind of gives you a focus on and a, a grounding in life. And most famously that was in the strip uh, gasoline alley. Um, but then thereafter, a lot of the other 
a cartoonist would say, oh, he's just going to tell you, put a kid in the strip. But it worked. It's what life is about, really. And it's and it and it made these strips something that people turn to every day to the point where they were um, they became rich and famous, especially Sidney Smith with the Gumps and Frank King and Dick Tracy strips like that, et cetera. So. So if, if we could stick with Frank King for a second and because a substantial amount of the exhibition is is dedicated to Frank King. Who, who was Frank yeah, King? Yeah, originally, oh, sorry. Uh, well, Frank King was a cartoonist uh, who was born in Cashton, Wisconsin, uh, up near Toma, Wisconsin. Um, spent some time working for local newspapers in Wisconsin, then Minneapolis, and eventually ended up in Chicago after he went to art school at the Academy of Fine Arts. One of the very few uh, artists in the exhibit, actually, who didn't go to the Art Institute. I was shocked to find out that a good, maybe 40% of the artists actually went to the Art Institute. I would assume they would have been turned away at the door, but I guess things were different then. Um, and he got uh, his, he found a success relatively late. He did dozens of like short-lived strips, always just trying to see what would catch fire and nothing ever really did until he did a kind of a throwaway panel about the fad of the automobile called Gasoline Alley, loosely based on his brother and brother-in-law, uh, Walter Drew, um, with whom he grew up with in, um, in Toma, Wisconsin, um, tinkering with the cars and the alleys of uh, actually Southside Chicago down around Archer Avenue or so. Um, and it was a, like a single panel strip about, you know, changing oil and tires blowing and stuff like that until, as I already mentioned, Patterson recommended that he bring a, a baby into the strip. So uh, on the uh, um, Valentine's Day in 1921, Uncle Walt opened his door and found an abandoned child on his doorstep. And um, from that point on, um, the strip became a sort of a strip about father and son relationships. And King's real insight was to not keep the child a child forever, but to have the child grow up one day at a time in the same way that the readers aged one day at a time. So with every passing day, not only did you get older, but the characters on paper got older. And the paper got older too. Newspaper turns yellow and brown and finally falls apart, just like us. So really, King was something of a genius in a way, realizing that both his medium and his story telling were, were of, a, of a pair. So, well, And that's, that, that runs sort of counter to my, like, my experience of, of newspaper comics, which centers around things like, uh, like the family circus, where nothing kind of ever changes, right? Or that like Marvel formula where nothing really ever happens, but they somehow told you a whole story about a villain destroying the universe. Um, yeah. I, I mean, King's real innovation too is that he tried to bring a gentleness and a quietness to comics. A lot of his best Sunday pages from the 20s and 30s are about autumn leaves or the color of the seasons or sometimes just a quiet walk with his, with, uh, with his son. And it's all uh, essentially loosely autobiographical. Almost every character in the strip is based on a real person in King's life. And most interestingly, the fact that his own son uh, went away, or I should say was sent away by both his wife and he to a boarding school. So the strip ended up being sort of an imaginary um, fictionalization of a life with a child that was no longer around. So these particular autumn strips were particularly poignant because that would have been the time when uh, his own son would have been going away to school. 
Um, if I can circle back, I'm, I'm curious as, as we started talking about the show, uh, the exhibit, um, there was, you know, like, I'm, I'm wondering if there's something that's baked into the DNA of the city that kind of uh, perpetuated the, these innovations. Like, is was there something about uh, the you know the the beginning, the 1880 uh, starting point that that something specific was happening in Chicago that kind of led to all of these innovations, or or is there a reason why Chicago that we would have seen such a kind of renaissance in in comic book? Uh, uh, affect, you know, kind of come come to life at that time? Well, there is actually, and I, I mean, you already told us that we can't curse, so I can't say that Chicago's a no BS town, but I really think that's true, and it's really, it's a it's an unpretentious place, and this is Tim's department, so I'm, I'm just, I'm going to let him talk. Well, this is really a storyline that you can apply to almost everything that was creative that evolved in Chicago. Chicago in the late 19th century was suddenly this upstart newcomer among American cities. And it was a place that never really evolved an old society that could have set ideas of how things should or could be done. You had people who settled here and did things in different creative disciplines that this was a place you could try something new and you were kind of on your own to do it. And uh, there was nobody here to tell you not to. And people came here with the idea of making a success of themselves and succeeding. And so in general, this allowed things to happen in Chicago that were different. In the case of journalism, I think kind of this freewheeling uh, spirit of journalism was very different from the old staid publications of the East Coast. And just like things that happened in journalism, happened in music, and happened in architecture in Chicago, we did things differently here. We didn't follow the rules. The people out east would sneer and say, ha, 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 look what those people in Chicago are doing. And then all of a sudden, the creativity that came out of it wound up changing the very media that the old establishment was making fun of. So uh, that's kind of Chicago's life story. And it's something that you always hope that Chicago never will completely grow up and can keep generating this sort of thing. And if I was going to define Chicago, that's exactly how I do it. I've, I've said too, also that this is kind of smart ass collegiate thing. Can I say smart ass? Is that cursing? No, to- it's not cursing. <laughs> okay, good. Um, it, that Chicago really kind of falls halfway on the geography of America between the coasts of reading and seeing where reading is New York and seeing is Los Angeles. And if you think of America basically as a timeline of Western expansion, that's the polite way of putting it or mow down, or maybe, you know, worst of all ways of thinking about it, genocide of just moving Westward and taking everything in your path. It really, Chicago really expanded right at the moment where words and pictures were combined on the printed page in a way that had never really been seen before. And the technology was there right at that moment to allow it to happen. And Tim actually, when we were putting the show together, discovered all this stuff, um, which kind of uh, confirmed our suspicions that Chicago was the place where it happened.
Sharon Hoyer spoke with Theater Y director Melissa Lorraine about how a trek down Spain's Camino de Santiago inspired a walking performance around Chicago's Emerald Necklace. Means of Production with Sharon Hoyer airs the third Friday of the month at 9 a.m. It's really interesting, and it sounds like the project is um, is more than just building a theater, um, but that uh, there's some housing development, there's community gardens, so mm-hmm. creation of something a little bit bigger than just, you know, plopping down a theater and opening the doors. Right? Yeah, I mean, we're really nervous about... Um, gentrification and the way that developers have wielded theaters against neighborhoods that they wish to gentrify. And we certainly don't want to be a part of any of that. So we're feeling like it's our responsibility to uh, to be very innovative and lucid about the consequence of our presence, good and bad, in the neighborhood and how we also arrive with solutions to some of the problems we create. So if we've increased the property value, which of course is the goal for any property owners in the area, that's a good thing, but but um, not if it pushes them out of their home. So we're trying to work with architects to generate geothermal heating and cooling solutions for the community so that the utility costs go down um, by the same amount that the property value goes up, for example. Just really trying to take hold of the economic consequences of any rejuvenation that we participate in. Um, We want to make sure that the residents are able to stay. And so it's really kind of a a massive undertaking, um, recognizing that we will probably fail many, many times. And so we're also working hard to document the entire project to try to offer up our failures to anyone else that is trying to participate in rejuvenation without gentrification. Yeah, that's interesting. I see that your partners, uh, not just on that, but also on the the upcoming performance that we'll talk about, include journalists and documentarians. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting aspect to how you're approaching your larger work. Um, And I'm interested in that as well as some of the other collaborators that you have and why you chose North Lawndale and, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe some people who are rooted in the community who are a part of this or how you're um, connecting to the community that's there in the planning of the move. Yeah, Um, my sister and my brother-in-law have actually lived in North Lawndale for 30 years and... um, Started my brother-in-law started an organization called the Young Men's Educational Network, which is an after-school program. Um, and my sister has been a, a teacher, a public school teacher in North Lawndale for 30 years. So I have worked extensively with uh, YMEN, the Young Men's Educational Network, for several years, um, and fell in love with the community um, years ago. And it it is a sort of second home to me in Chicago, um, but. I wasn't considering that particular neighborhood as a location for the theater company um, <clears throat> for for all the reasons that perhaps other theater companies um, are not are still not considering um, placing their theater there, and um, such as that it's uh, that it's regarded as dangerous um, and. Uh, there would be concern that the audience wouldn't come to North Lawndale unless they were from North Lawndale or 
um, any, you know, any, any number of, um, of um, legitimate and illegitimate uh, stereotypes of the neighborhood. And um, so we, I guess part of what happened in 2020 was that we were invited uh, to North Lawndale and at the invitation, all the pieces came into place for me. Um, I felt like, of course, North Lawndale. I love this community. It feels like home. Um, they have no no points of normalcy, no grocery store, no coffee shop, um, no theater company. But of course, then all the feelings of, um, you know, why aren't we a grocery store if we're coming? You know, like really, what they need is a grocery store, not a theater company. And is this is this putting things out of order? And mm. Um, would they like theater why to be here? All of those questions, you know, like is this is it even appropriate for us to are, are we are we wanted in this neighborhood? Um, and then the feeling that 2020 had really shifted the the world in a way that I believed, you know, as a member supported theater company. So we're a free theater. We have 200 members who pay monthly to keep our doors open to the public. Part of the hesitation of relocating would be losing those members, right? If they don't, if they don't follow you, then you've lost your, your, your bread and butter. Um, but I felt like in 2020, they might follow us. They might understand the move. They might, mm -hmm want to visit North Lawndale for the first time. They might, you know, it might not be as um, as disruptive to the infrastructure of the organization as it would have been in 2019. And so it suddenly felt like this is possible in a new way also um, and and doesn't have to be in a reinvention of the company. That was, that was the big sort of um, linchpin for me because... We've been an international theater company, and when we felt like we were partnering with people around the world at, and neglecting our neighbor in North Lawndale, you know, the I, I took stock and just felt like we needed to reevaluate our priorities and prioritize our neighbor. But did that mean we were no longer going to be an international theater company? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Steve Bynum became the board president of Theater Y. Steve is a, a senior producer at WBEZ and an African-American from Auburn Gresham. And he climbed into the theater company because of this vision and felt very strongly that what, um, what North Lawndale really needed was to be, um, it was global citizenship and this access to the world that, um, that had been so transformative for him as a as an African American. The moment he left America, uh, the slavery narrative dissolved, and he saw himself in a completely different way in the world. And he wanted to pass that on to others in his community. You know, he wanted that experience for other African Americans in Chicago, and felt very strongly that in fact, putting Theater Y in North Lawndale was more than putting a theater company in, in the neighborhood. It was, it was creating a bridge to the world. Um, and so that really helped me understand how this was a continuum of our investigation 
these last 16 years, you know, a, a pivot, no doubt, but a not a, a full rebranding of who we are and what we do. And then we started conversations with the North Lawndale Community Coordinating Council, which is a remarkable organization of 300 stakeholders in North Lawndale who crafted a quality of life plan for North Lawndale in 2015. And they broke down exactly their seven initiatives and asked us how we could participate in their seven initiatives. And I looked at the initiatives and identified that we could partner in five of them um, if we really took a larger approach than just art making. We could really tackle some of the uh, other concerns that they had, including housing and and jobs and and um, um, recreation and uh, walkability and all of these things that then bring us to the Camino Project. As a theater company, we've been doing this kind of walking investigation for a long time and understanding the human value of mobility and community in uh, in walking and realizing that that too is something that people in North Lawndale are deprived of because yeah. it isn't safe to walk. And so how can we um, partner with the community to, to reclaim that human right um, together and you know, it's just it, the conversation just got larger and larger um, and we felt more and more excited about our our capacity as artists to really come alongside of a community in service to that community and and ask for what it is they need from us and then do our best to accomplish it. <laughs> Oh, traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Oh, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh, oh my God. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder. 
Are you washing that car with my clothes? Hey, don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry did. Oh, here comes the meltdown. I answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go. This week on The Biden Files, Afghanistan collapses as the Taliban take Kabul. Texas Governor Greg Abbott gets COVID, blames migrants. Lake Mead's water level drops to an historic level. Mask mandates are back. Severe weather grips the U.S. And Trump says he's running again in 2024. Oh boy. These are The Biden Files. Day 206, August 13th. Fresh intelligence reports indicate Russia is making a new effort to interfere in the 2022 elections. Russian efforts to interfere in elections are evolving and ongoing, according to current and former officials, and in fact, never stopped, despite President Joe Biden's warning to Russian President Vladimir Putin over the summer and a new round of sanctions imposed on Russia in the spring. The United States reported nearly 1 million vaccinations in the past day, the most since early July. 576,000 people got their first dose of the vaccine. The surge is being put down to the Delta variant. Nine House moderate Democrats threaten not to back a budget vote until the infrastructure bill recently sent from the Senate passes. The letter from the Democrats, which are more than enough to block passage, threatens their party's two-track plan to pass both a $3.5 trillion social policy budget blueprint and an infrastructure bill. The Biden administration will implement the largest permanent increase in food stamps in the program's history. The jump in benefits comes after a revision of the initiative's nutrition standards that supporters say will reduce hunger and better reflect how Americans actually eat. And U.S. military commanders reportedly hid fatal flaws with the Afghan army and police forces for more than a decade. Those fears were ultimately borne out by the sudden collapse this month of Afghan security forces who made a wholesale and unconditional surrender to the Taliban. Is perhaps the worst debacle in the history of proxy warfare. Day 207, August 14th. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she is now looking to advance the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a broader $3.5 trillion budget framework simultaneously. Her plan to tie the infrastructure bill with a budget resolution came following a threat from moderate Democrats not to vote for the resolution until the bipartisan infrastructure plan passes the House and is signed into law. A Texas school district has made face masks part of its dress code in order to get around Governor Greg Abbott's anti-mask mandate order. Several school districts in Texas, including Dallas and San Antonio, have sought to require their students and staff to wear masks amid a steep increase in COVID cases. Abbott, however, has tried to ban mask mandates and even gone to Texas's Supreme Court to stop them. In a related story, the Biden administration said they will use a federal civil rights office to deter states from banning universal masking in school classrooms. The move, using the Department of Education's Civil Rights Enforcement Authority, is a sharp escalation of that administration's fight with Republican governors who are blocking local school districts, notably in Texas and Florida, from requiring masks to protect against COVID-19. Day 208, August 15th. The Biden administration announced they will require nursing home staff nationwide to be vaccinated against COVID as a condition for those facilities to continue receiving federal Medicare and Medicaid funding. The new mandate, in the form of a forthcoming regulation to be issued by the CDC and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, could take effect as soon as September 1st. 
Federal election officials begun an investigation into Colorado Republican Representative Lauren Babert over her apparent personal use of campaign funds. The FEC sent a letter to the treasurer of Babert's 2022 re-election campaign inquiring about four Venmo payments totaling more than $6,000. A spokesman for Babert said that they were personal expenses and were already reimbursed but did not say what those payments were for. The New York State Attorney General told a court the NRA must be dissolved after it failed to clean up misconduct. In a court filing, Attorney General Letitia James said the National Rifle Association hasn't cleaned up rampant financial and managerial misconduct as it claimed over the past year, illustrating the need for the gun rights group to be dissolved. The NRA has tried to file bankruptcy to get out of the court case in New York State. Day 209, August 16th. All airline flights been grounded in Kabul, Afghanistan as chaos enveloped that city's main airport with 3,000 American troops struggling to gain control. At least five have been killed, one Marine has been reported injured. Dramatic satellite images showed throngs of crowds attempting to flee the country with Afghans sitting on the tarmac and holding on to wheel wells. At least three Afghans are known to have died from plummeting from an airplane at height. The U.S. government said that in the coming days it would evacuate thousands of American citizens, embassy employees and their families, and particularly vulnerable Afghan nationals. Amid the chaos, which came after the Taliban took Kabul without a shot fired, President Biden said he stood behind the pullout despite the collapse and added he could not ask American troops to fight and die when the country's military would not. Saying, I stand squarely behind my decision, Biden added he will not shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today. The Texas Supreme Court, which is entirely comprised of elected Republican justices, has blocked mask mandates ordered by two of the nation's largest counties. The order by the state's highest court halts mask requirements that county leaders in Dallas and San Antonio put in place as new infections began to soar and students began returning to school. Texas has reported more than 11,500 patients hospitalized with the virus on Sunday, the most since January. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has banned mask mandates even as COVID cases surge and hospitals are stretched thin. He has also blamed border migrants for bringing COVID into Texas. Day 210, August 17th. Texas Governor Greg Abbott tested positive for COVID. Abbott, who has pursued hardline right-wing policies in that state, said he was fully vaccinated against the virus and is not symptomatic. Abbott, who is also an ardent opponent of mask and vaccine mandates, has taken his opposition to such requirements all the way to the state Supreme Court. Texas is now seeing more than 1,500 new daily cases, an increase of 53% from two weeks earlier. In a first, the federal government has declared a water shortage at Lake Mead, one of the Colorado River's main reservoirs. The declaration automatically triggers cuts in water supply that, for now, mostly will affect Arizona farmers. Much smaller reductions are mandated for Nevada and for Mexico, but larger cuts affecting far more of the 40 million people in the West who rely on the river for at least part of their water supply are now likely in coming years. The lake is at just 34% of total capacity. That is the lowest since the construction of the Hoover Dam in 1934. The CDC is expected to announce that most Americans should get a booster vaccination eight months after they receive their second shot. Third shots could come as early as mid-September. The move is being driven by the Delta variant and new data showing a worrying decline in the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine. Day 211, August 18th. 
The Taliban sought to reassure the world they will be responsible stewards in Afghanistan as chaos continued to royal airports in that nation. American troops continued to evacuate Kabul's international airport, but it was unclear last night whether Afghans could even make it there. While talks are ongoing, the Taliban have a dismal history of managing a nation largely dependent on foreign aid. They are also known for their cruelty toward women and children. In a related story, the Taliban fired into a crowd of protesters this morning in Jalalabad, violently crushing emerging public protests there against their rule. Chicago reintroduced an indoor mask mandate as cases continue to spiral upwards in that city. As of Friday, anyone aged two and older will have to wear a face mask in indoor public spaces regardless of their vaccine status. The mandate will apply to gyms, common areas of apartment or condo complexes, private clubs, as well as bars and restaurants. Chicago recently surpassed 400 cases a day, which Health Commissioner Dr. Alice Narwadi had called a line in the sand. Illinois, however, is not yet reintroducing a mandate. Illinois' positivity rate is now at 5.7 percent. Day 212, August 19th. Protesters took to the streets against Taliban rule for the second day in a row, marching in Kabul on Afghanistan's Independence Day. At one demonstration in the city, about 200 people had gathered before the Taliban broke it up violently. The displays of defiance came as the reality of governing was beginning to set in. The Taliban have been frozen out of international financial markets by the USA and the International Monetary Fund, and critical services such as electricity, sanitation, and water are starting to be affected in the nation. President Biden said he is committed to keeping troops in Afghanistan until every American is evacuated, even if that means maintaining a military presence there beyond his August 34th deadline for withdrawal. Biden said the United States will do everything in our power to evacuate Americans and U.S. allies from Afghanistan before the deadline. If there's American citizens left, we're going to stay until we get them all out. The White House announced that Americans who received the Pfizer and Moderna coronavirus vaccines should now get a booster shot eight months after receiving their second doses. The CDC said those shots will be rolled out on September 20th. Healthcare workers, nursing home residents, and other older adults who were vaccinated early will be first in line. In a prepared statement, the CDC cited evidence of reduced protection against mild and moderate disease, but said the vaccines remained highly effective against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. In related stories, Alabama has run out of ICU beds. Arkansas is said to be close to that as well. Texas is now being forced to build overflow tents in the cities of Houston and Austin. And Washington State rolled out the strictest vaccine mandate imposed to date by any state for teachers and other staff members in all schools. All teachers and school personnel, including coaches, bus drivers, and volunteers, will now need to be fully vaccinated as a condition of employment. The requirement applies to staff regardless of the type of school in which they work, public, charter, or private. A man who claimed to have a bomb in a pickup truck outside the Library of Congress surrendered to the police after hours of negotiations and evacuations of several government buildings in the D.C. area. The man surrendered peacefully. As far as we can tell, it was just his decision to surrender. Police identified the man as Floyd Ray Rosenberry and said that it appeared he acted alone. No motive was yet known. The severe drought that has gripped much of the western half of the U.S. is likely to continue into at least late fall. The outlook for September through November, prepared by meteorologists with the National Weather Service, suggests that above average temperatures are likely across almost all of the west. Precipitation is expected to be below normal from the southwest into the Rockies and the northern plains. And Trump told Fox News that while he was prevented from declaring his candidacy by campaign finance laws, viewers would be happy with his answer. 
He had previously said he would wait for the result of midterm elections in November next year before making up his mind whether he would run or not. These are the Biden Five. Chuck Mertz chatted with Niall Reddy about South Africa's crippling mass unemployment and the wave of discontent washing over the nation. South Africa, which has been rocked by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma, is also seeing as much as 42% of its population out of work. With the nation's bitter legacy of apartheid, can South Africa avoid sliding into an authoritarian regime? This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to help us understand exactly what is happening in South Africa, South African writer Niall Reddy wrote the AfricaIsACountry.com article, A Terrifying Vision of South Africa's Future. Welcome to This is Hell, Niall. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. You can follow Niall on Twitter at Red underscore Niall. You write that... uh, Predicting a major political shockwave has been standard fare among South African pundits for some time. The sheer depth of the socioeconomic crisis in the country, best encapsulated by a broad unemployment rate of 42%, made it something of a safe bet. Why does South Africa have such high unemployment? Is there a singular problem that drives unemployment, like access to a quality education or job training? Because I got to tell you, Niall, yesterday I put that question into Google and I said, why does South Africa have such high unemployment? The first answer back was lack of an education. Is that the real root cause of the high unemployment rate in South Africa? Uh, Look, I mean, there's no simple answer to the question, uh, but I could tell you that that answer, the one that Google gave you, is pretty far off the mark. If we're going to try to narrow it down to anything, uh, lack of education, I think, is is definitely one of the one of the lesser drivers of what's happening in the economy. It's the explanation that tends to be favored uh, by the business community, by large scale capital in particular, because it's an explanation that I think helps them to divert from the bigger structural changes that are actually needed to get out of this economy. So, so they, they, tend to, they tend to want to set up the unemployment problem as essentially a supply side problem. They were not producing the right skills. We're not giving them enough engineers and STEM graduates, et cetera. If we just did that, then the market would be able to function perfectly according to its own logic. There wouldn't need to be any kind of concerted state intervention. We just need to fix this one supply side question and things will be back on track. The reality is it's a it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that. It is very much a deep-rooted legacy of the economic structure that we had under apartheid, in which you had a very capital-intensive um, mining-driven economy uh, dominant in South Africa that was then drawing uh, labor out of these reserves into which much of the black into which most of the black population had been pushed. And then what happened was in the uh, when the ANC comes to power, and as your listeners will probably know, it came to power at the time it, it had a very sort of social democratic orientation itself. It comes into power in alliance with the main trade union movement and the Communist Party. Um, it, it looks like it's going to implement some kind of progressive distributive agenda and gets very quickly, uh, pushed in a very different direction through the combined effort of local capital and international capital ends up adopting a quite orthodox neoliberal program. And this effectively just guts the economy. You have the winds of foreign competition just blow through and create enormous destruction, uproot the manufacturing industry. And so you suddenly have unemployment shooting up immediately in the post-apartheid period. At the same time as these 
uh, form of the Bantustans, these reserves in which the African population had been held, are now uh, suddenly supplying a hell of a lot more labor. But because we're in this low growth, deindustrializing, neoliberal framework, it just has no capacity to absorb that labor. And so unemployment climbs steadily up until around 35, 36% is what it was, uh, what it's been out over the last sort of decade and a half. And then when the COVID crisis hits, it puts it right up to 42%. And that's about 75% amongst people younger than 28. So just a complete inability of the economy to uh, absorb this level of labor. And so kind of permanent exclusion is what is the condition of, of a giant section of the population. Do you think when a country does institute uh, neoliberalism, do you think that, that is, uh, it's a typical response of any criticism of uh, neoliberalism is, well, we just lack education and we therefore we cannot produce what we need to produce to have a vigorous economy? Do you, is that a typical ex- excuse when we hear, for instance, the, uh, during the Obama administration or during the Biden administration, during the Trump administration, whenever they say the problem is education and the lack of job training, do you think that is just an intentional excuse to obfuscate the responsibility that neoliberalism liberalism has for the downturn in the economy? I mean, I think it certainly fulfills that function. Look, I think a lot of the people putting this argument across are true believers in it, right? They're ideologues of a certain kind. I don't think they're being deliberately disingenuous when they claim this. Um, but it certainly does have that convenient function because, and it's funny because it creates a lot of confusion because in the business press, what they talk about this is structural reforms. They say there's structural problems with the economy, but what they mean is simply this that there's a supply side issue around education. And you're totally right that it's not, you know, this is not just an argument that we hear in South Africa, it's all over the world. This tends to be a convenient way out, um, a convenient way of not really having to address deeper root causes. In the US, of course, it's deployed also as an argument against inequality. Why do you have massive inequality? Well, we just haven't given certain people the right jobs. But in reality, I mean, the education problem would resolve itself fairly quickly. Look, I'm not saying that, you know, it wouldn't help to have a better education system. But the reality is that the jobs are just not being supplied in South Africa. And in fact, one of the things that gives a lie to this narrative is that there's even pretty high rates of unemployment amongst um, graduates and amongst graduates specifically of those kinds of disciplines that would supposedly be useful for for an industrializing economy. Um, and so it certainly fulfills this function, whether or not they're doing it, you know, whether or not they're, they're doing it in an entirely cynical way or just because this is what their ideology tells them, I guess, is a more complicated issue. Does the African National Congress, does the ANC, well, first of all, did they have a choice when it came to going down the path of neoliberalism? And do they currently have a choice? Could they abandon neoliberalism without having a horrible, you know, after blowback from the international community on their economy? I mean, they certainly had a choice. Um, Let's be frank, it was an extremely difficult position that they were faced with at the time that they came to power. This was a period of real triumphalism for global neoliberalism. It was shortly in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, It was a period where there were few international allies for the uh, ANC to have crafted this left agenda. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the case that the ANC pushed as hard as it could have against these external constraints and then found them unwilling, unable to bend them and and therefore fell into a neoliberal program. In fact, it was a much more complicated process where one wing of the ANC had already decided 
before liberation. That was the wing under Tabo Mbeki, who was the guy who took over from Nelson Mandela. Um, that there was no real alternative to globalizing the economy. They'd made this decision beforehand. Um, there wasn't a significant base in the ANC that was a sort of middle-class, upwardly mobile base that very quickly realized that they had no stake in creating disruption and in scaring away capital by pushing a dangerous economic policy of redistribution. And so there was certainly, it, it, was, it was not the case that it was just external constraints that held the party down. There was a big section of the party that actually actively adopted this strategy and decided it would be in their own interest to do so. And then the real tragedy was that the left in the in the alliance, the tripartite alliance that's between the, the trade union Kosatu and the South African Communist Party, was just never effective at resisting this. Chicago singer-songwriter Julian Danielle, formerly of the band Elk Walking, releases his debut EP, Only Words, today. You can catch him at Shuba's tonight. This is the world radio premiere of I Want It All.
download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. The point is, is this is this is industry news for those in the wellness spheres, but I think it has wider implications, okay. and that is, of course, I'll be the judge of that. That distance reiki has officially been recognized by the Guild of Energy Workers, which is opening a new paradigm in energy healing. Um, an exciting new rule ruling uh-huh. from the high cabal the, of the Guild of Energy Workers. The Guild of Energy Workers. Yes. The regulatory body of energy workers, of energy healers. There's a regulatory body. A very strict regulatory body, and they have voted 4-3 to officially recognize remote Reiki as a legitimate form Wait, of energy healing. The There are only seven people in this regulatory body? Well, that's the high cabal. Wait. What does that mean? That is the highest ruling body within the guild. Sure. We don't need to discuss the structure of the guild. Yeah, it's I not, can look that up on my own. Time. Absolutely, absolutely. But so it's a little bit of background to this. Um, with the pandemic, many individuals who are undergoing these sort of um, very highly affectatious, I might say, energy treatments okay. had to resort to having their practitioners do their energy work through applications like um, Zoom and Skype remotely. Remotely, uh, Ronde. I, I don't know a, about that. I think that I, a lot of people are using Ronde. It was Matt, brother's service. I, I you know, I think now. most people that are on a high enough vibration, a high enough frequency to be seeking out these services would understand that the Guy Five Network is, you know, is um, anathema is anathema to. But that's besides the point. It was met with a lot of skepticism, this, mm-hmm. this remote work. Um, but and some of the individuals in the field went so far as to call those who are doing this remote work um, fraudsters, hucksters, individuals mm-hmm. who are not taking the science seriously. The but, science of Reiki. Uh, of, of energy healing. Um, it's also orgone, chi, life energy. It's, it, there's many interpretations of all of it. I don't this, know what uh, any of those mean. This opens the floodgate to allow the use of healing energy mm-hmm. over great distances. It's going to help a lot of people, Kai, and I'm, for one, I'm very, very excited about it. So what so what is my question is what is distance rate how does that work well with a normal energy treatment you would be close to the individual they would lay on their back mm-hmm. or on their front oftentimes they'll be naked and you will you will oil your hands to uh-huh. sort of allow the conductivity to be the spiritual conductivity to be at its highest spiritual and you and you and you by by Sensing and moving the natural life energy flows in a prone body, you can with your hands with your hands and oftentimes, but other other appendages can be used. Some oh. of some of the energy healing masters, some of the grandmasters, can do this entirely Grand just masters. through 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 eyesight. The point the point is is that energy is recirculated, stagnant energy is released. Um, high pressure right. points are are taken to low pressure areas it's and like treatment weather. is enabled treatment is and, and so, so what you're saying is that this guild has finally come down and said that by moving your hands around to sort of move the spiritual energy inside your body around this is something that can work as well at a at an impossibly far distance As it would work if you were right next to the person. Yes. Eureka Cast Now. 
broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m., on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.